So, hey, we are working through um, the New Testament book, Revelation. If you've been with us for the last few weeks, you're aware of that. We are in chapter 3 today. I titled today's message, Recalculating, because we see through these various letters to the churches uh, an exhortation, uh, um, an encouragement in some elements of it, but then also there's times you need to change course. There's times the things need to be adjusted in the routing and in the way you're headed. And so as we've worked through these first three chapters of really what I believe is an amazing book, um, we have seen a rich and, and really a beautiful description of Jesus. As you were there in chapter one, and, and maybe you caught that part where you know, Jesus gives some description about himself by the names that he uses, because the names explain or even give insight into his, his character, his qualities, his attributes. Each of the churches, you know, they were beginning in chapter two, that were addressed, each church, we gained a glimpse of his attributes and characteristics as well, and we've spent time looking at that. Uh, we've also been reminded of his presence as he declares that he is in the midst of us and that he knows. I hope you've caught that. To each church, he said, he declared, I know. He, he talked about or identified some of their um, efforts and works and commended them in some things. And, and he says, I know. And you'll see he continues to do that. And it's so important. It's an, es- an, an essential element of spiritual life, literally, to be aware that he knows. He knows the culture and what's going on in Ephesus. And he is aware of what took place in Smyrna, in Pergamos, in Thyatira, in Sardis, in Philadelphia, in Laodicea, in Mountain Home. In every, and literally speaking plural, he's writing to um, a geographic church, if you would. There's actually meeting places there. But it's plural. He's addressing it to all these churches. And so we see the application of this, this book to be not only uh, at the time, and then uh, there's a historical connection, but then there's also a contemporary uh, application and a personal application. And he knows you. He knows your, the world around you. He knows our actions. He knows our intentions. He knows our desires. I can't reiterate it enough. It changes the way you roll through life when you realize and accept and move according to this truth. He knows. He knows. And as we look at this last chap, the last church um, lift, listed here in chapter 3, I'm hoping that we'll be uh, eager and willing to receive his word. We're going to look at some things that I, I love being able to teach through the Bible, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Because if you got a problem with what's happening here today... It's just the order. I didn't like, no, you didn't, I didn't check the attendance, see who signed up today, pick a message to persecute somebody with, and just, you know, it's just where we're at. We're rolling through it. And I love it because it also helps each one of us to see, man, this is the, the word of God, and he brings it to light into our own lives. So let's read verse 14 through 23, or 22 of Revelation 3, and then I'd like to pray. And the angel of the church of the Laodiceans right? These things, says the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither hot nor cold. I could wish that you were hot or cold. So then, because you are lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich, have become wealthy, 
and have need of nothing, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich, and white garments, that you may be clothed, that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed, and anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see. Verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word today. Thank you that you know, Lord. You know us better than we know ourselves. Your word reveals that you know the thoughts and the intents of the heart, the actions and attitudes that we don't really even fully understand. And even knowing that, you call us to counsel. You draw us to receive from you words of encouragement, words of hope, words of correction, words of direction to lead us through our lives, Lord God. And so we just thank you, Jesus, for your faithfulness, Thank you that you are sure and steady. Thank you, God, for who you are. As we face so much instability and oddities and absurdities in this world, we thank you that you are the sure foundation. And so I would ask, Lord, that you would teach each one of us. You would reveal to us where we're at in a way that we can receive from you, in a way that we'll draw nearer to you and we'll realize your great love in such a way our lives will be transformed for your glory and for our joy. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Well, let me give you a little background as each one of these churches geographically had some uh, characteristics or some things within the history of the various cities. And uh, I think we see that there's some some application there and and consideration. Um, This this particular church, ultimately what we see is it's addressing material prosperity that had dominated the church. There was a confidence and a security in the means of livelihood and the goods you possess. It's, it's just like, it's like this. If you find yourself, in a sense, you know, professing to be a Christian, but you find your sense of, of satisfaction and sense of security in your accounts or in your assets or in the accomplishments, you want to do a quick heart check. Because why is that? That the material goods of this world bring such a satiation, such a satisfaction that we just sell in, okay, I'm doing good. You know, if you, I, I, I know this because I've been down this road before. Well, when you look in the account and there's more than you're used to seeing, and you're like, wow, this is good. Well, careful. Because that materialism is what can be such a distraction. The Bible warns us about trusting in material things of this world. And yet, that is what we see all around us. It's not just an American thing. Even in Eastern cultures, which used to be so opposed to what Western civilization presses for and values so highly, Eastern even religions, there's this, this thrust in the last, you know, less than 100 years to be a focus upon acquisition and assets and all these different things. It's referred to as the domination of materialism. And so we're so immersed in it, it's hard to see it, agreed? When you're like, it's all around you, and it's all you've known, it's all I've ever known, and I'm not that old. Some of you may argue, but I'm not that old. 
It's all I've known. It's the world I live in. And so I, I got to be careful because, you know, what happens sometimes? We read the Bible based on our world, not based on the truth. And so that, you see what I'm saying? It, it, it affects how we interpret it. But we want to just stop and go, wait a minute. I want to take heed. I want to be careful where I stand lest I fall. And we're going to look at some things today that are really um, causing us to rethink where we're headed. I, I've titled it Recalculating. You guys have, remember the old GPS? <laughs> recalculating. It was what it would say, recalculating. Why, why would it say that? Well, you're off course. You missed a turn. Maybe you're not following instructions. And it's recalculating. Well, I think we should be the ones doing the recalculating. Where am I actually headed? You know, we live in an age that's really shaken a lot of people. The things that used to be stable and somewhat reliable are completely unstable and unreliable. You look at the global shift in socioeconomic realities and governmental influence and corporate power and how things have shifted since 2018, mid-2018, manifested mostly in late 2019 into 2020. There's a, there's a radical shift. You have to be like head in the sand, ostrich theology to not see it. And so we see these things and we're like, man, what, I got to get a sense of where am I headed? What's going on? You know, when you're going the wrong way, hopefully you appreciate correction and redirection, right? Now, I know there's a gender factor in the front seat of a car that when someone advises the husband to, to take a turn here or to go that way, it's better. There's sometimes some friction. I've heard about that. Um, I don't know. I didn't, when I received it, I, when I was told different directions, I just didn't listen. So there wasn't an argument, but you know, just kidding. Do you receive redirection? Many Christians are resistant to it. And I'll speak for myself. There's times I don't want to change, especially if things are comfortable and they're not super bad. They're just, I'm okay with it. But if you're going the wrong wrong direction comfortably, where's that going to take you? The same place it would have if it was uncomfortable. Change of direction, receive it. Let let me give you a little background, a little uh, glimpse of, of this culture and what we're dealing with here in Laodicea. And uh, I'm going to bring this thing in here. Laodicea was one of three cities. It was a tri-city area. There was uh, Laodicea, um, Hierapolis, and another city you should be familiar with, Colossae. Your New Testament book, Colossians, was uh, within a few miles of Laodicea, very close to each other. Nestled in the uh, mountains of Turkey, Laodicea was a beautiful um, in a beautiful fertile area, beautiful place, but it had a big problem. It did not have good water source. So I'll, bring, I'll come back to that here in just a little while. The letter to the Colossians, Colossae, the, one of the Tri-Cities, in chapter 4, verse 16, reveals that there was a letter written to this church in Laodicea. And so we don't have that letter now. We don't know if that was maybe in some part what was carried on to Ephesians or uh, to the church in Ephesus or it was parallel with this one, but um, we do know that it's mentioned. Laodicea was destroyed by an earthquake in 60 AD, and they rebuilt their entire city without help from the Roman government. They were very standoffish. Listen, we can do this ourselves. Their primary wealth was from banking, commerce, a medical school that was famous for this powder that when you mixed it into a paste, a salve, 
Um, they claimed it would clear eye disease. All eye diseases was their claim, and soothe ear discomfort and infection. So they're very well known for that in that medical school. They also had, were famous for a, a wool that, that was produced there. Um, it was a gorgeous, soft, glossy black wool, still produced there today. Um, and so it was just amazing for the, the clothing because it was so unique, and it still is unique. And so the rich and elite sought after this particular product, a part of the wealth of this particular city. Laodicea is two Greek words. One means to rule and one means um, of the people. Many scholars see this as a a suggestion of of a democracy. Um, Others hold that it speaks of ruling over the people. Laodicea was a place where they didn't need anything. They rebuilt their city without help. They were self-sufficient and self-confident. Sound familiar, America? I mean, seriously, think about it. There's a parallel for us. It's a different time, but it's not a different truth. Where we as a nation, you look how we, there's something, and many people have studied this and and haven't really figured it out, but there's something about what we refer to as the, the American spirit, right? We're independently united, which sounds like contradiction, but there's, there are certain things that come about, and when we go through hardship or adversity or certain things, even with some of the friction that politics and different opinions bring, it's a fascinating way that we tend to unite and actually elevate. We, we, we are, and we, I, I, there's no formula to this. There's just something, I think, very beautiful, unique, but also dangerous, in that we, we just figure out how to make it work whether it's through, you look at the, the Great Depression and how America responded and, re, and it really uh, you know, grew from that and a lot, of, a lot of different things. I won't get into all those historical dynamics as you see it. But you also see, hopefully, what that says to the Lord sometimes. I can do this. I'll just do this. I'll get another job. I'll do this. I'll do that. I'll, I can do this. There's an element of self-confidence and self-sufficiency. Let's jump into the text we've already read beginning there in verse 14. Interesting that Jesus says to the angel, which could be the, it's the pastor, the messenger of the church, Laodiceans, these things says the amen. It's the first time you see him using that description of himself. Where do you, where do we usually see or hear the word amen? In agreement with something, so be it, amen. And you read it in the text of scripture. You read it, there's passages in the New Testament. But do you know that's more than just so be it in the sense of its, its, its force and its, its, its meaning? It speaks of an unchangeableness. The big church word is immutability. Immutable. It carries the idea of something that's, that's fixed and unchangeable. Something that is totally reliable. So it's interesting that he equates that. He uses that as a description in a, in a type of name. Here's the one who is the amen, because hopefully you and I can agree that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's unchanging. He's immutable. He holds truth. He goes on to give a description of his quality attributes, his personage, the faithful and true witness. He's the faithful and true witness, not as someone who would make a declaration or a, a pronunciation or something, an accusation, and, and be false and just do it because they got an axe to grind or whatever. It's just he's just faithful and the true one who speaks the truth, the witness. Interesting. Also, you may know that it says he's the beginning of the creation of God. It seems like a lot of words to say he's the creator. 
you know, and it's interesting if you take that statement, what he says there, which, let me give you the, uh, maybe an understanding of that. I, the beginning of the creation of God is he's the focal point. He controls time. He has made everything that has been made. And he is the beginning, speaking of the sense of, of preeminence and, and, and power. It speaks of first in prominence, more than first in sequence. Does that help? Because some people want to see this and go, well, he was born, so he's not the creator. But if you read the parallel passage, the sister city, Colossians chapter 1, you'll see that he gives a really brilliant, I mean, a phenomenal insight into he, who he is as the creator. All things that have been made were made through him, and nothing that has been made has been made without him. He has made all things. He is literally the creator. He's the firstborn in preeminence, not in sequence. And it's important to understand that. Colossians 1 is one you can dig into and and see the greater detail and insight there. So he moves on from this, you know, reminding them who he is. He then says in verse 15, I know. I know, and I've emphasized this each week as we went through this, because it's something that we can't overlook. It changes the way you live your life. You either live your life in a sense of fear because he knows or great relief because he knows. We cannot hide from God. Have you ever tried to cover something up so people didn't know? This is the part where everybody says, yes, but you're in church so you don't want people to know you're a sinner so you don't say anything. But the fact is we all have tried to like kind of make it somehow make us look better. Guess what? He knows. You want to know, consider this. 2 Samuel chapter 11, the, not the demise, but the, the foolish mistakes of David. David ended up given, setting aside his responsibilities as the king, hung back where he wasn't supposed to be, give himself liberties he should never have taken, put himself at a point of temptation, gave into that sin, committed adultery, then committed a cover-up that involved the death of many more people, and at the end of the chapter, he ends up marrying the widow, the woman he committed adultery with, and to everybody in the kingdom, it looked like he was a pretty cool king. Look how he took in this poor woman, this poor widow, her husband was killed in battle. And it says in Second uh, Samuel chapter 11, verse 27, but the thing that David did displeased the Lord. It wasn't hard for him to fool most of the people. He did not fool God. And if you've read chapter 12, you know uh, Nathan comes, because what David wouldn't deal with privately, God dealt with publicly. When we try to cover things up and pretend like he doesn't know, we create such a mess. Have you ever been accused of something falsely? He knows. You know, you can't change what some people do and what they say. Have you ever noticed that? Because some people have such a zeal and and such a disregard for the foundation of reason and truth that the more you try to, to, you know, sometimes bring clarity, it's like bringing fuel to a fire that was dying, and you just, it just flares up and flares up, and there's a point you just you. But guess what? He knows. You know, there's many people that went through divorce, and many people that went through terrible things, and and the public opinion is is not infiltrated. It's not uh, smothered with truth. It's only 
with one, one opinion. And so I just want you to realize, see how that changes our lives when we know he knows. We realize, you know, if you've, have you ever thought of yourself as more spiritual than you really are? Oh, come on. Don't sit here in church and lie. <laughs> it's, we all do it. There's times, you know, somebody compliments us or pats us on the back or thanks for the encouragement. And we're like, wow, I'm pretty spiritual. <laughs> no, you're not. You're not that spiritual. You're not. What you have expressed when in true honor to God is his presence emanating through you for his glory and your joy. So what is expressed, which could be, hopefully, is very evident and, and there, we want to say thank you, God, for who you are, that you could use me in some manner to affect someone's life for eternity. Praise you, Jesus, that you would do that. But we do. There's times we want to, we you know, Knowledge puffs up. You know, one of the, thinking about how much time I got. Eh, whatever, throw caution to the wind. Um, there's a thing I've been chewing on a lot lately. We see in our culture more and more people are drunk. They're intoxicated on ego. They are self-intoxicated with their own opinions. And they're delusional because they're so convinced that they're, the, they're right. They can't receive instruction. You, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's, just, it's kind of scary. And you see, like, but guess what? God knows. And so those who present themselves as more of this or more that or more definitive or more spiritual, we want to be ready to receive correction. Jesus says, I know your works. And that can be a tremendous comfort or a disturbing caution, right? A tremendous comfort, I know, he knows, he knows what's going down, or a very disturbing caution. The question is, do you know the one who knows? See, that's really the question. See, knowing of someone, I think we can agree, it's quite different than having a close relationship with someone. You could know of a lot. We live in an age where you can get all kinds of information. Not that you'll have wisdom, but you can have information. So you have all this information about an athlete or perhaps a, a corporate leader or whatever it may be or whoever. You can, you can Google it. You can research it. You can find it. You can find out tremendous details. But this doesn't mean you know them. You can even have a sense of familiarity and like, because you've researched it a lot and you do it a lot. But guess what? Face to face, you don't know that. You can know the owner of a, of a major corporation by name. You can know the details about them, where, you know, you know, like where their office is, you know, where they live. But that's not the same as knowing them in a relational sense. And you can prove this because would you barge into their house and ask for help with your finances if you only knew of them? You might try. It's not going to go well. It's, it's, you know, I mean, if you could even get past their gate or whatever. I mean, you see what I'm saying? You just wouldn't do that. You wouldn't be so bold. But if that person was your loving parent, would you go boldly into their home of grace to find mercy and help in time of need? You clearly would because of the relationship you have. Many professing Christians only know of God. They even like what they hear about him. But they choose not to have a close relationship with him. That's what we see in verse 15. I know. You, you're neither hot nor cold. I, I could wish you were one or the other, hot or cold. What's he speaking to? Hot or cold. You're either, in a sense, spiritually alive and vibrant, 
or unresponsive and cold-hearted. See, most scholars agree that hot here is, is speaking of alive to God. You know, we could say filled with the Spirit, led by the Spirit, but just alive to God. And, and cold is, is like the one with severe hypothermia. With severe hypothermia, when your body gets so cold, you, know, you want to stay, uh, you want to position yourself in kind of the fetal position and just cuddle up. You know, just, and, and ultimately what you have in an expression is, you know, relying on yourself to produce enough heat to preserve life. Do you see the parallel with what's being presented here? And I wish you were hot or cold because some people, you know, you can profess to be a Christian and not be born again. I could actually take you back a week and we looked at it. You can study it on your own this week. Matthew chapter 7, look at verses 21 to 23, where Jesus said of those who would say, hey, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we not done all these things in your name? And do you remember those terrifying words that he spoke to them? To someone who says they're a Christian, who says you know, they, they relate, they attend, they participate, but they have not entered into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. He says, depart from me, you lawless ones, you workers of iniquity, I don't even know you. Man, isn't that sobering? That should be scary. You should know whether you're born again or not. You should not look at, well, I know I make mistakes, and this. you shouldn't work through justification. Think, oh, I, I, I'm getting it together. No, you should know. And why do you want to know? Because you want to know that you've been forgiven, that you have a personal relationship with him. If you do not have a personal relationship with the living God in the person of Jesus Christ, you were not born again. And it doesn't matter who your grandma was. It doesn't matter wh- what you do or how much you give. It doesn't matter. You do not have a relationship with Christ unless you have surrendered to him, acknowledged your sins, and I need your forgiveness for what I've done, and entered into that relationship experiencing his forgiveness and letting him lead your life. If we won't let him lead, your, lead our lives, then how can we say he's our Lord? Right? I'm not, I'm just reading, guys. I'm not pointing fingers. I'm just saying, listen, it, it just make it, he's speaking to something very critical to the church. Many people in our age, in our day, in our time, say they're born again, and they are not according to Scripture. They're more in the cold side, not even lukewarm. Understand, you know, there's, there's a difference. As we see in verse 16, so then, because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Uh, You've got to understand, when you become born again, you know, because many people you know, many scholars believe the cold are not even born again. They're just people that say they're Christians. But when you're born again, when that happens, when you surrender to God, when you are, are literally forgiven for your sins because you admit you need his forgiveness, you put your faith in Christ and he gives you faith to grow, the whole thing's unfolding and you're regenerated. You are right here and now you're growing and you're gonna go from a, a temperature from not real hot towards hot. So that transitional thing, if you're thinking that way, it, it, it's not, that's not the um, lukewarm he's talking about. He's not speaking to someone who's alive and maturing. See, we, we see places, I see places in my Christian journey where I was more un- immature, un- unmotivated, if you would. And, but I chose, choose to grow closer to him. See, that's a part of spiritual growth. Lukewarm is speaking to someone who chooses to stay in the lukewarm, this in-between spiritual state, the close enough type of Christian 
Close enough. You ever, you ever heard that term, close enough? That's someone who says, I could do better, but I'm done. I could do more. You know, maybe you can apply it to work. Maybe you've heard it in the, close enough. It's one of those things that kind of get under my skin sometimes because it's like, how could it now be close enough? And think about it in a spiritual sense. Well, you know, I'm not where I used to be. I mean, I, I mean I've matured a little bit, but I'm not as bad as this guy over here. I mean, that guy, I bet he doesn't even know Jesus. I mean, I'm no holy roller like that person over there, but hey, I'm right here. I'm good. I'm good. I'm comfortable right here. Is, is in the middle, is mediocrity, is mediocrity our measure for spirituality? Is that good enough? I hope not, because this is a really strong warning if we choose to take that position. Lukewarm is a really bad temp. You know, it's interesting because the water source, I mentioned, I'll come back to it, in Laodicea came by way of an aqueduct in Hierapolis, which is part of the, one of the Tri-Cities, six miles away. The source water was a hot springs, and it smelled and tasted terrible. Think sulfur. Yeah, maybe some of you remember that. I, I'll touch on something, not to pick on a geography or a location, but um, we were up in uh, um, Garden Valley one time, rented a cabin there on the island, or kind of right where the two rivers come together. And where we just, man, it was really nice, beautiful views. Everything was great. I mean, it was just phenomenal. And I went into the first bathroom there, you know, and I'm just going to get a drink of water. It had a little plastic cup, you know. I kind of run a little cold water and take a sip. And Man, it had that sulfur. You guys know what I'm talking about? They're so kind of making you a little upset right now, right? Like, ooh, ooh. That, that's what's so, it's interesting that in Laodicea, that thing was present. And when you took a sip of that stuff, you spit it out. And I believe that's a lot of what he's drawing from a natural or from a geographical understanding and what we can see. This is what's happening. You literally spit it out because it, it was that offensive. And, you know, when I took a drink of that, I could smell it. Water shouldn't smell, right? I mean, you shouldn't like get a warning before you took a sip. And I, I mentioned all that because Jesus is using something here. It's like, I spew it from my mouth. It is of no taste. I mean, I, I, no. And that's a, that's a strongest, I think it's the most graphic thing he says about someone who chooses to be in an in-between, neutral, lukewarm, spiritual state. He doesn't say, I will nurture you. He says, Bleh! That's what happens. That's what he says. It's like, no, that's distasteful. It's not like a set him aside and correct. That's a full-on reject. You don't go back and take a sip of that again. Well, I'm going to move on before I get in trouble. (laughs) Moving on to verse 17. Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy. So this passage we're going to get into, this verse, the deception of materialism. That's the deception. And so the, the challenge to it is it's, it's so easy to be there and not realize how spiritually stalled you really are in our culture because we are immersed in this materialism. Yeah, we teach through the Bible. Yes, we discipline ourselves. Yes, we come and worship on Sunday. Yes, we worship throughout the week in consideration. But you're swimming in materialism all, year, all day long. That's the world that you live in. 
You, it's inundated through your entertainment. It's in the writings of our culture. It's in the motivation of your, your, your seminars. It's in your vocation. It's in the education. It's wrapped around what we, on our little portion of the planet, call the American dream. All these different things. And so we got to understand, okay, what, what's really going on here? If we see ourselves as, hey, I'm this, and notice what he says. You see yourselves. You've become wealthy and have, no, have need of nothing. You don't understand. I want, to, I want you to turn with me to um, 1 Timothy chapter 6. And we'll look at something here in regards to materialism. In 1 Timothy 6, we're, we're given insight and in, in really what we should be our awareness. And I'll say this without trying to compromise or in any way lessen the severity Having wealth and riches is one thing. I don't see it as necessarily a bad thing. It's when the wealth and riches have you. That's the huge issue. And not everybody can recognize who owns who. It's kind of a complicated. But we can see some clarity in verse 6 of First Timothy chapter 6. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out. We, do we agree with that? Why do people amass fortunes and build this, this super you know, wealth, so to speak, when they really got to accept the fact that you're not forwarding it? You, you know, it's not going ahead. And yeah, you can le- leave it for your family. There's, there's a biblical merit and background for that heritage, inheritance. But recognize if you're driven for just a little more, you know, just a little more, you're not taking it with you. And we'll come back to that thought here in a little bit. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich and desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. See, this deception of materialism is the basis that we don't like to agree, but just a little more. Just a little more. I have this much, but you know, it would be nice to have that, and I really would be beneficial if I did this. And if we had that, then we could travel to that warm climate in the winter and come back. And if we had this, we could do that. And it all fits because that's the, the world we're swimming in. But we look at this and say, man, that, it, it says it, it's, it, it can bring into many foolish and harmful lusts. So you don't want to look around and go, well, they've got this and they've got that, so I can have this. No, you, you need to know from the Lord. You need to understand what God is directing you to and how to be a good steward of what he's entrusted to you and how to pursue what he's put in front of you, not because you're pursuing it, but because you're, you're, you're loving him. It goes on to say in verse 10, for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And it's sad when you see that. It's sad when you see someone stumble and go off course. And yet, when you talk to many of them, I've not talked to, I haven't spoken with a lot, but I've had some conversations that fit this passage. They don't see that they're off course. They, they don't agree that they're in a sad state. They actually will, will make it to be some type of ministry or something. They don't even realize they pierce themselves through with many sorrows. See what that does? This pursuit of things that, that really were going to provide not what we think they will provide creates also a a spiritual um we're not receptive we become not one who can be taught but one who would just continue on in its many sorrows i have sat bedside with many people they're right at the point of passing away into this leaving this realm and into the very presence of god 
and I've never had one say, I just wish I had more money. Not once have I looked into their eyes and watched their, their eyes don't always close, they just kind of go lifeless, so to speak. And I've never had someone say, yeah, I just I wish I could have provided more. It's always a fear when, that, when that's the situation or the scenario. A fear like, oh man, what have I, I've wasted my life, my time. Continuing in the verse, we'll look at verse 11 there in 1 Timothy 6. But you, O man of God, flee these things and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Lay hold on eternal life to which you are also called. And we'll move back to Revelation at this point in chapter 3, verse 17. Verse 17, let's continue. That's where we were at. We went over there and looked in Timothy and some warnings and exhortations concerning what the deception of richness and materialism looks like. But let's also consider what Jesus declares to the lukewarm, lukewarm Christian. We don't always see. We don't always agree. But this is what he says. You're a spiritual wretch. That, and that's a pretty strong word, agreed? I mean, wretch. A wretch, interesting, is one who brings undue troubles and toil upon themselves. So it's bad enough to go through troubles and toils, but this, to, to bring, one, bring more, because as we've seen back in Timothy, this, this pursuit of things that don't provide. We also see in this text there in verse 17 that you're not only you, you're wretched, you're miserable is what he's describing, you know, in deep misery. And it speaks of a, of a self-inflicted suffering to be pitied. And you think about what pity. Pity is having sorrow and compassion for someone who caused their own suffering. And so it's sad when we see people, you know, in situations where they, they just, they're in real misery, especially when they want more stuff that you're like, oh, don't you realize that's what is causing your misery? Have you ever noticed that stuff has this other thing with it called maintenance? And maintenance sucks the life out of you. So that's why you get rid of the old stuff and get new stuff. And then you, wait, maintain the new stuff. And it's like, wait a minute. Also, we see described here as someone who's poor, literally spiritually destitute. Someone who, and this is what Jesus, he's describing this. And this, these are harsh words. I mean, if, you're, if you don't see it in the totality, in the, in the context, He's like saying, listen, you don't realize it, but you're, you're, you think you're fine and all this stuff is providing for you joy and happiness, but guess what? You're, 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 you're spiritually destitute. You're bankrupt and begging. You're living out the spiritual tidbits you get from others. The little you know, morsels that your spouse brings to the table and speaks of their spiritual life or, or these other people that speak of these things or this verse you hear on the radio and you're just barely surviving and, and you're spiritually poor, but you, you, it says that you say that you're rich. Not only that, we see he describes as continuing there in verse 17, not only poor but blind. A spiritual blindness where the eyes are closed to what's available to you. Sounds childish, but it's really accurate. You've seen a little toddler type when, say, something is on TV or is coming at them and they don't want to see, what do they do? Because it's gone now. Like I just closed my eyes and the sanctuary emptied. But my eyes are open. I just see. It's, it's that's what's being said. You're, you're blind not because you can't see, because you believe this is actually going to bring happiness for you. And in reality, he's saying you're, you're blind. 
and you're naked. Nakedness speaks of, of shameful. It's shameful. And that concludes the message today. Have a good day. Talk to you later. <laughs> Notice he, in verse 18, does not leave you there, or me there, or anyone in all history. Throughout the last 2,000 years, as he brings this to mind and causes us to contemplate it, and sometimes a deep conviction of the accuracy of his word, he then says in verse 18, I, I counsel you. He, he's advising. He's, he's telling us, you know, what, do you, what, do you, what are you doing? I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, that you may be rich. And then these garments, these white garments, which would be in contrast to what the world loved about the black garments with that glossy wool that was there in Laodicea, in contrast, you need to be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. So we take his advice, we invest into, into eternity. What currency do you use? I mean, how do we buy this? He paves with the streets of heaven with gold, so gold's not going to be so beneficial. What do we buy this with? What has value to God? Your life. Your life is the one thing of great value, or your life is what he died for. Your life is the one thing that everyone has, and our joy and our challenge and our, our great victory is to spend our life knowing him. Spend your life knowing him, on the job, doing what you do, engaging with people that maybe don't even come close to agreeing with you, and whatever it may be, spend your life knowing him, knowing his forgiveness, knowing his help, knowing his joy, knowing his perspective about people. Maybe you can hold this tight. You don't know what you don't know concerning people, concerning scenarios, concerning situation and relationships and all these things. You, you don't know what you don't know. That sounds overly simplistic, but I don't know what that person's going through. I don't know what they really went through. I, I know of them from 10 years ago or five weeks ago or six months ago. I know of that. I don't know what they're going through now. I don't know what I don't know. So hopefully that would soften us and have us learn from the Lord to take his perspective. So I want to spend my life, that's our exhortation, is getting to know him. And in the process of getting to know him, I want to know who I am. Because that's the reality. Because our relationship with him defines us. If I'm going to the king, but I don't know that I'm a son, I'm getting engaged different. But when I realize I'm his son, hopefully I have such a love for the king that I want to represent him wherever I go in a manner that brings honor to his name because I love the king and the king loves me. See, it's a relational thing. Know who you are and also know his correction. You see there in verse 19, as many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. You know, there's times that we are receiving correction. Yes, you can make things worse for yourself. Think discipline. Think back when you were a kid. When... I remember one time my mom told me that I, it was my responsibility to clean up my toys or stuff. I can't remember total details. But she said, you need to get going. You need to get that cleaned up. And I said, no, I don't. You do it. I said that once, once. <laughs> it compounded my disciplinary experience in a great way. Because mom loves me. She's like, you're not going to talk to me like that. And then she said the most terrifying, second most terrifying words to man. The first one is, depart from me, I don't know you. The second one is, wait till your dad gets home. Those were, those were like soul-shaking words from the mouth of mom. But 
So my point is, when God, when, when you're loved, you're disciplined. I would advise you, do not discipline your neighbor's kids in this culture. It's a bad idea. Discipline your own. You know what I'm talking about. You see what I'm saying? Why wouldn't you discipline them? Because they're not your kids. That's why. You understand it. And God disciplines his kids. He disciplines. You can read it in Hebrews. He disciplines and chastens those he loves. So with that, I want to recognize, I want to respond to his correction. Don't make it difficult. Like I was just the example with my mom I shared. I want to repent promptly. Notice he says, be zealous and repent. Oh, yeah, God, I just, I know that wasn't wrong. I'm going to start working on that next week, and I'll see if I can kind of adjust my behavior. No, no. The, the, the word is very specific. To be zealous and repent. In other words, to, to react right now and stay the course of repentance. Not just a spontaneous turn because of a thought and a passing idea that lack discipline and focus. But to repent and to be, to be zealous and repent. Repent promptly. Notice in verse 20, he says, I stand at the door and knock. That would indicate he's outside the door. And some have pondered and wondered, does that mean he's not in the midst of this church? And, and I would suggest to you, that's not the context I would embrace. Jesus is outside knocking. Will you let him into every room of your heart? Maybe you've heard of uh, My Heart Christ's Home. It's a, a pamphlet, a handout. It's been around for years, really good. Speaks of when we invite Christ into our life and he literally indwells our heart, the Bible says. Well, it takes the picture, the, the, the analogy, if you would, of your heart being a home and a home having various rooms. And because you have multiple rooms, you have maybe a room for, the, like, say, the kitchen and the bedroom, and you have your recreation room, and you have these other rooms. And I like to just tie that together with this, what he says here. I stand in the door and knock. Will you let him into every area of your life? Does the recreation room not get his lordship? Does the bedroom... Is he not allowed in there? Do you see what I'm saying? Just kind of start the bills, you know, where the office is. Is that, is that someplace that he can knock at the door and come in and, and, and be welcomed? Because to, to dine and to, to sup, as some translations say, speaks of this closeness to eat together and be you know, knit together. So I want to encourage you to consider that application in your life. Man, God, are you knocking at that part of my life and that part of my, that room in my heart? And I'm saying, uh, I got this. Don't. You get this whole salvation thing, take care of that for me. I'll take care of this stuff. That's a really, it's a chippy attitude you shouldn't take to the Lord, to say the least. So look at verse 21. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. So he has equipped us through his victory to be overcomers for his glory and our joy. Do you see how he ties this together for you and me? I have overcome, he says, and he invites us to overcome. He says, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father. Jesus so wants us to understand his closeness. And he's saying, listen, I, I, I am with you on this. I, I'm carrying you through. You need to understand. And sometimes we feel God is so distant, so detached, so far from us because we see our sin and we don't see our Savior. And we need to see our Savior and not let the sin. He, he is the one who's taken that sin. He's taken care of it. We don't want to continue in sin because we understand what a great price he paid for our sin. So I encourage you, realize he's already conquered. He will not call you to do something he, he would not equip you to do. 
And he says that, I I have overcame, so you overcome. Verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. I like that it's plural. He didn't say, who has an ear to hear, let him hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church in Philadelphia, to the church in you know, Laodicea, to the church in Smyrna, to the churches. What he's saying to you, what he's speaking to me, what he's showing us, listen to obey. What if we just listen to listen? Listen to obey. So with that, I'd like the worship team to come back up. We're also going to venture back as they're working their way up here, back to 1 Timothy 6, specifically verse 10. And you're like, wait, uh, we already did that. Yeah, we did. <laughs> We're going to return to it, and it's going to be our, our uh, focal point as we close in prayer. So would you uh, stand up with me, and we will close our time in a song of worship and prayer. I want to encourage you, you know, I love the group gatherings like this. They're just, you know, it's the second one for me today. Um, They're they're phenomenal. God has designed us to have this. But your relationship begins much more intimate, much more personal and clearly private between you and the Lord. And whatever he has brought to your heart or stirred in your mind or maybe you're now, you have a question you haven't resolved, you take it to him. It's between you and him. You, you need to leave here knowing you're saved or working out why you're not. It's really important because you do not want to just be flippant and just lukewarm and find yourself not concerned about your personal salvation. You should be deeply concerned. And if you have it, you should be concerned. Am I listening? That's not fear of losing it. That's longing to be closer So I want to be closer to him. So let's pray together and then uh, we'll join together in a song of worship. God, thank you for this time today that we could gather in your name. Lord, we came in here with various ideas and dreams and goals and aspirations. And Lord, we pray that you would continue to direct those. Not in that you would bless us with more stuff per se, but you'd show us how to put you first in all things. To have that confidence that you have forgiven us of our sins. Not because we want to build an ego or confidence, but because we have great confidence in the truth of your word. That whoever puts their faith in you, whoever believes in you and trusts you for forgiveness and new life, you say, whoever does that has eternal life and then you will lead us in this new life. Not leaving us alongside the road to starve as an infant, but you will walk us down this journey, down this road to maturity. And so, Lord, keep us close to you, God. I pray, Lord, as we consider these words, that we would let you shine the light of truth deep into our soul. The love of money would not be a distraction. It would not be a deception that would eventually destroy a family and break up a relationship. But rather, those evil that it tends to draw to, we would not be drawn in by that. But rather, in faith, We would see truth, hope, direction, strength, provision from you in every way that we not be pierced through with many sorrows. God, help us to look to you, turn aside from those things which would tear us apart and to pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience, gentleness, 
as your children, as soldiers of the living God. Show us our role as we choose to fight the good fight of faith, to take hold of eternal life with our eyes fixed upon you, Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Lead us through this week, God. We pray in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.